Scripture reading today will be from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must stop, must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with your own hands that you may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through uh, this text this morning. We're talking about being game changers in the community around us. And uh, as we get ready to go into this text, let's bow our heads, join our hearts, and ask God to bless us. Father, beyond all doubt, you are great and mighty, strong and loving. And we are the beneficiaries of all the blessings that, that radiate out of your character in all the universe. And we pray, Father, that as all of those blessings impact our lives in such a way that it shake us and revolutionize us and transform us into people that make a difference everywhere we go in order for people to know the beauty of your presence and the reality, more than anything else, the reality of your presence in all of our lives. Thank you, Father, for this text. And as we think, study, contemplate, we ask you to give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. In this we pray with all of our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've told you this, uh, this story before over the, the years. Uh, some decades ago, I was watching Mutual of Omaha's uh, Wild Kingdom. And, uh, you know, liked Marlon Perkins, liked, liked that show. Don't know exactly when it was I saw this. It was, it was a long time ago. But they were in Africa. I forgot the nation. They were in Africa. They were in a helicopter, and they were tracking a rhinoceros. And that rhino was, uh, was a little perturbed that there was this helicopter that was getting a little bit too close to it, so it tried to trot off. The helicopter followed. 
El, the, uh, the rhino got really perturbed at that point, and the next thing you know, he's running, and he's running as fast as he can, and he runs right into a mire. And when he hits that mud, as big as he is, he hits that mud, he comes to a complete stop. Well, he began to sink. And as he began to sink, he began to be frightened. And as he was frightened, he began to struggle. The more he struggled, the deeper he went. The deeper he went, the more frightened he became. The more frightened, the more he struggled. The more he struggled, the deeper he went. And you get the idea. Eventually, that rhino was lost. Now, the rhino, as a lot of you know, my favorite animal in the entire world, and that rhino appears in the best of light to be a massive, unstoppable, feral, powerful force as an animal in the wild kingdom. But for all of its mass and all of its strength, the rhino has a nature which means that it has limitations. A rhino can't skip across the top of the water. A rhino doesn't float in the mud. And when it does get into the mud and it does get into the mire, all of its assets become a liability. Now, when you come to understand and accept the nature of something, of anything, of everything, you see not only what it can do, but you also see what it can't do. Think about the nature of a folding lawn chair. Folding lawn chair is made to be portable. It's made to be comfortable. It's made for you to sit on it. And all of that, it does fantastically. But you know, it has a nature and it has a limit. And as great as a lawn chair might be to sit on, the one thing you can't do with it is treat it like a boat. It is not in the nature of the chair to be a boat. Now, why all this about rhinos and folding chairs? A question we want to think about this morning, human beings. Do human beings have a nature? Do human beings have a nature? Now, at one time, you could assume that everyone agreed that there was such a thing as human nature, but not anymore, especially in light of all of the talk that you hear all over the world today, but mainly in Western culture, the talk that says something like, you can never limit the power of a human being, or the un unlimited potential or possibility of being a human being. Sounds a lot like the Tower of Babel, if you ask me. But there are those who argue that humans do not have a nature, which means that humans do not have limitations, that a nature would place on them. One example, uh, democracy in the 20th century. I'm speaking philosophically, not politically. But democracy, as we know it today in Western culture, pushes towards total, unfettered human freedom, which means that what is lifted up to the highest place, to the highest rank, is human will. Humans want what they want, and they want it when they want it. And what that usually means is that... Uh, with, with will being right up there at the very top, human will, it leads to desire. Humans want, want what they want, and ignoring the limitations, they are going to follow their desire wherever that leads them. But here's the thing about desire. Desire is not self-limiting. Desire has never been self-limiting. You know why? Because desire wants what it wants. Desire is always going to expand the boundaries or try to expand the boundaries. It's always going to push the limits. There are no restrictions placed on any kind of behavior that is going to gratify and fulfill desire. And all is well, and everyone's happy, until 
they follow desire into a mire and humans begin to sink. And the more they sink, the more frightened they become, the more frightened they become, the deeper they go. The deeper they go, the more they struggle, the more frightened they are, and you know how that story goes. The real struggle for a lot of human beings and also at the root of and cause for much of the human suffering in the world is trying to decide in that area of desire between what is good and what is desired. They're not always the same. And not knowing the difference has led to a lot of human suffering in the world and a lot of regret. Paul struggles with that same thing in trying to communicate the importance of understanding that humans have a nature and that it's locked up with God. In our text uh, that, that Al read to us, beginning verse 22, if you were just to back up in Ephesians chapter 4, about five or six verses, you'd read these words. It's sort of a preamble to our text. He said, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And if you go down to about verse 22... And so they are corrupted by evil desires. The human mind that does not choose God but chooses something else is a mind that becomes confused. And what Paul is describing here in Ephesians chapter 4 and other places like Romans chapter 1 is what happens when humans reject God and they make desire the ultimate value, the highest good, the thing to chase in life. I heard Dallas Willard one time describe humans who do not accept that they have a nature and therefore limitations as farmers who do not believe in weeds and bugs but only in fertilizer. And what they do is they pour the fertilizer on everything and in the end what they get are just bigger weeds and bigger bugs. But here's the thing, and this is what the Bible instructs us to know and to live according to, is that we do have a nature. That is the answer to the question. Do humans have a nature? The answer is yes. We are made in the image of God, which means that we have limitations on what it means to be human. We are created to reflect the God who is the ultimate. We are created to reflect God's presence in His creation. We recognize that there is a God and that we are made in His image. And the work of the gospel is to return us to that. It's one of the things that the gospel does. It is God's will for us as image bearers to once again, the first four verses into Ephesians, what's it say? It's God's will that as image bearers we once again be what? Holy and blameless. Go three more verses in Ephesians chapter 1. It is God's will for us to be redeemed, which means that that, that God through Christ and the cross is ending our enslavement to sin. It also means that we have been forgiven of our sins, which means that we no longer have that legal penalty to pay. It also means that it's God's will for His Holy Spirit to dwell in us, providing the strength so that all of those things come to pass. That it's possible for a human to become what he or she was created to be, and that is to reflect the image of God, not only in our church and fellowship, but in this community and in the world. 
Now, in our text, uh, we have, it, it's, it's, it's a portfolio, not a complete one, but it's a little portfolio of what it means to be an image bearer of God in a world that God has created but no longer believes that He exists or at a minimum is in charge anymore. Now, you'll remember that last week we said that growing as a disciple of Jesus happens intentionally and it happens incrementally. And we're going to begin that incremental, intentional learning about what it means to be a disciple this week by learning what it means to be people of truth and what it means to represent truth and to embrace that truth. And in our text, we see three things. We see a motivation, we see a practice, and we see a renouncement. Let me read verse 25 again. Paul says, Therefore, since all of this putting off and putting on, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Let's read that verse together. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. What we're going to do is look at verse 25, and we're going to begin at the end and work our way back to the beginning. Number one, the motivation. When you think about telling the truth or not telling a lie, what is it that motivates you? What motivates you to speak the truth? Is it because in our culture, liars can't be trusted? Or is it that you might get caught and you have such an aversion to shame that you live within the parameters and you never want to tell a lie? Or at least get caught in a lie because you can't handle the shame or you can't handle the consequences? Or is it because you want this reputation of being a man of your word? Or is it that you just don't like being lied to? And maybe you've been lied to in the past. Maybe it was a boss, a friend, a parent, uh, a spouse, and you were lied to, and it was such a horrific experience that you never want to go through that again, and you don't want to be a part of going through that ever again with anybody else. Now, these are all true. They're all true, and they're all good, but they are not the highest, most central motivation for truthfulness as a disciple of Jesus. The highest motivation for speaking the truth and being a person of truthfulness is that you are a part, it, it, that truthfulness is a part of your identity. At the end of that verse, Paul writes, we are all members of one body. What is the one body that Paul is referring to? The church. But the church is the body of, say it, Christ. That little phrase, and we read it all over, the, all over the place, that little phrase is one we need to think about and not just bring past. We are all members of a body, and that body is Christ. And what does the Word of God have to say about the Christ? John chapter 1, verse 14, as John the disciple is introducing the Messiah to us, he says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and what? Truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, there, he's at the end of his earthly ministry and the disciples are still struggling over his identity and where it's all headed and the kingdom. And they have some ideas, but they're still a little confused about some things. And what is it that Jesus says point blank about his identity? I am the way and the what? Truth and the life. He is the truth. To be a member of the body of Christ means that all the things that Christ embodied as a disciple of His, 
We too embody that. As Christ spoke the truth, lived the truth, embraced the truth of God, in all of his interactions with people, we do the exact same thing. It's not just speaking the truth as truth, as this objective piece of information, but it's doing it like the Messiah. It's, It's doing it like the Christ. That's what we do as disciples. Earlier in the chapter, one of the things that Paul writes about is speaking the truth in love. Chapter 4, verse 15. You know, the truth can be pretty heavy at times, right? And a lot of times, when somebody's trying to speak the truth into our lives, it's pretty hard to, to swallow that truth into our lives. That's why love is always coupled with it. Paul were writing in another place, to another church, it was sort of divided up like that church in Ephesus was. He says, you know what? Love does not delight in evil. So what does love rejoice in love rejoices with the truth but again we've all done it and we've all been the recipients that telling the truth is not always done in a loving way i remember about 35 years ago reading a book called the kink and i you know one of those self-help self-help books that you you know you kind of keep it on your shelf for about five years and you go why in the world did i ever have this and in it, though, he, there was this incredible truth that, that just made sense at that time in my life. And he said, you know, the, the truth is a really important thing, and it's got to be handled rightly. But too many times, people treat the truth like it's a club that they're going to beat somebody over the head with. That's not very loving, is it? Instead, that's very controlling, and that's very manipulative. But at the same time, it's not very loving to withhold the truth, especially the truths that save and redeem and transform and bless. Do you remember that passage in John chapter 8, the first 11, 12 verses or so? Here's Jesus. He's he's there in Jerusalem. He's, 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 He's there doing what he does, being the Messiah, when all of a sudden there's this rabble that comes and they toss this woman in front of him that they have caught in the act of adultery. And here's the thing that's happening. You know, Jesus is not going to be intimidated. He doesn't work according to other people's agenda. And so what does he do? As all of this is about to explode, he gets down on the ground, he squats down, he begins to write in the dirt. And one of the spokesmen of the rabble says, you know what, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Moses says that we ought to stone her. What say you? Now, we know from the way that John tells the story that all they're trying to do is, is, is to trap him. They could care less about the woman. That's what's hypocritical about them. And they begin to pick up stones, and we think they're getting ready to get the green light and the the, the, the flag, the, the green flag, to be able to stone that girl. But they're trying to trap Jesus, and they're picking up those stones, and we're not told specifically, but I think that maybe they're looking to stone him because he's contradicting Moses, or they think he will. And Jesus loves them like he loves the woman caught in adultery. And he stands up and he looks him in the eye and he says, why don't you think about this? If you don't have any sin in your life, go ahead, cast that stone. And they got it. And one by one, beginning with the oldest all the way to the youngest, because the oldest are the wisest and the quickest, understanding what it is he's saying, they begin to drop the stones and go off. He's got this woman 
caught in the act of adultery. Nobody was questioning that. He says to her, where are your accusers? She goes, they're gone. He said, I'm not going to accuse you either. Go, though, and sin no more. Do you think that revolutionized or transformed that woman's life? How about that woman that showed up at the Pharisee's house when they're having dinner, and she walks in as a known sinner in that community, and she walks in, and there's Jesus. She knew he was there. Everybody knew who she was, and she knew whose house she was going into, house of the Pharisee. But there was something, there's a backstory there that interests me to know in. There is something in her interaction with Jesus, speaking truth into her life, that allowed her, empowered her to go into what religiously was a pack of wolves, and she was a sheep, to be with the Messiah. Disciples who are learning how to live and to speak truthfully with others like the Christ are going to be changed are going to be game changers wherever they go. But that also leads then to the practice of doing it. That, that's the way that Christ did it, and that's who we're called to emulate. What about the practice? He says in verse 25, speak truthfully to your neighbor. Well, the world is not always an honest place, is it? Evil is an active force in the world, and it manifests itself in lots of ways, but evil works mainly through lies and deceit. And as a disciple of Jesus, you do not speak evil into someone's life. Four verses later, verse 29, Paul's going to say, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The word there is about corruption and decay but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It is, it is possible to speak in such a way that you can corrupt and tear down another human being. I mean, that's sort of the essence of humor and comedy in our world, at least in Western culture today. You don't have to go very far to see this as a reality in life. There's slander and there's gossip in the office. People are always talking about somebody being thrown under the, what, bus. Parents say things to children and children to parents that drive them apart rather than bring them together. Think about something that you've said to someone you love, like a, like a spouse or a dear friend, that you wish you could take back, but you can't. The most effective can of worm openers in your life, your words. And all of these, all of these instances, whether we're the recipient or we're the initiator of, of the corrupting, tearing down kind of language, all of these should remind us of what we as human beings are capable to, of doing to other human beings with our words. There's this, this passage in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And I think there's some of the most sobering words for people who take discipleship and the gospel seriously. There's some of the most serious, sober-minded words that we'll run across. He says, I'm going to tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word. You know, we talk all the time about good deeds, Right? Talk about how God sees how you're laying up treasure in heaven with your money. 
Jesus right here says, you know, on the day of judgment, everything that you have said, all those empty, vain words, those corrupting words, those unwholesome words that you said out loud to people, to individuals, all of that is going to be called into account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. A disciple of Jesus is just going to think about their speech. But then there's also, and this is last, a renouncement. At the very beginning of that verse, he says, each one of you must put off falsehood. You know, you've always heard, and sometimes you may have seen it portrayed on television, somebody that is renouncing their citizenship. They are a citizen of a nation that they have lost their desire to live in. They see issues and problems without resolution in that country, or they've begun to think differently and they can no longer tolerate what they perceive to be injustices or lies, etc., etc. And at the same time, they see a different place. They see a different country, a different land, full of hope and opportunity and completely different for their possible present and future. That's what Paul is saying happens when you become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. That you renounce citizenship in the kingdom of darkness because you have taken, been made a child, that you have been adopted into the family, that you've become a citizen of the country, of of the kingdom of light. He says in chapter 5, verse 8 of Ephesians, you were once darkness, but now you are what? Light. Live as children of light. As a Christian, you come out of the darkness and into the light. You have renounced one kingdom where Satan, who is the father of lies, reigns and corrupts, and you become a citizen of heaven. You know, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, what do you have? You have the fall of man. And what's happening in the fall of man? You have this garden. And they're told, you can eat whatever it is that you want to eat in this garden. One tree, one tree only. Please stay away from it. The knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from that tree. Eat everything else. And then one day, while Eve is wandering around, she runs into a serpent. And what does the serpent do? Lie. Serpent lies. And the next thing, she begins to believe the lie. She falls into the falsehood. She falls into the deceit. And she eats, and you know the rest of the story. Sin enters into the world and death. But the world becomes a place not just of the truthfulness of God, but it also becomes a place of deceit and falsehood, a reality of lies. But in that story, there is also the the prediction that there's going to be one who comes who's going to put a stop to it. And one day this one does come. And one day he's talking about himself and he's talking about his teachings. And he says, and you're going to know the truth. And Jesus says, the truth will do what? Set you free. Set you free. We're not made to live in that kind of falsehood, that kind of deceit, lies. That's why there's so much anxiety. If you think about it, human beings, when they were created... There was nothing for us to be anxious about. Anxiety was was foreign. It was something that was introduced later on. We're not built for anxiety. That's why it doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel very good. But then the truth and the way and the life come into our life and things begin to change because of the Christ. 
we're going to sing a song right now about the greatness of God. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And, and maybe there's some things in your life you just need to work on when it comes to not just speaking the truth and not telling lies, but just being a person that exhibits because you embrace with both arms and both legs the truth of who Christ is and the truth of the gospel and the truth of what the cross does and the truth of the difference it makes in your life. But you haven't been living it very well and you could use the, the prayers of your brothers or sisters. Or it might be that that you've just never come to that place where you say, you know, this is kind of a truth, but it's all of a sudden become the truth of all truths. The truth above all the other truths is that I am a sinner and that I am lost and that I am wretched and that God is giving me a way through the cross, through the Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, through redemption, through the Spirit coming and living inside of me and empowering me to become the person I always should be, to have a new chance of living life on this planet till the day we see Him. And if that describes you this morning and you want to know more about what that entails, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. They'd love to talk to you about it. But the rest of us, we're going to sing this great song. Let's stand and let's sing it with all of our hearts. The splendor of a king.